You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. Stand with me. I'm going to begin reading with verse 25. These verses are verses... um, for which I have a great deal of fondness. As a matter of fact, if you've been a member of First Southern very long, you will know that uh, these verses, beginning with verse 25, comprise the portion of Scripture the Lord Jesus has used on more than one occasion to speak to my heart about the ministry that the Lord has assigned me, in which I joyfully accept and wonderfully enjoy uh, right here at First Southern. As a matter of fact, in verse 25, The Apostle Paul says, Of this church I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. And in that verse we see what makes a minister. And uh, we looked at that last Wednesday evening. Now, let's continue and ask the question, what makes a ministry? Do we really have an authentic ministry here at First Southern? What would be involved in an authentic ministry in the name of Jesus? He says, we've given it, been given this to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor. That's an interesting word there. The word literally uh, refers to, to to, to a kind of labor that brings an amazing amount of fatigue. He says, I I'm involved in that which brings fatigue, but I strive according to his working which works in me mightily. Father, my prayer is a prayer of faith, believing that you have brought us here this morning, believing that we have an authentic ministry in the name of Jesus so that not one person here need go away from this place this morning without having his need met. For you have said, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You have said that you would never leave us nor forsake us. You have said that underneath us are your everlasting arms. You have said, I know the thoughts I think toward you says the Lord your God, thoughts of good and not of evil, to prosper you and not harm you, to give you a hope and a future. And so, Father, we're trusting that as we call unto you this morning that you will show us great and mighty things which we know not. Father, I'm trusting your Holy Spirit to bring honor to Christ, to speak through me, to stir the hearts of men and women, bring people to the point of saying yes to you and all of your claims on their life this morning. And I pray these things in the wonderful and matchless and marvelous name of Jesus, who is our Lord and our Savior, and who is the master of our lives. Amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. Do keep your Bible open to Colossians chapter 1. The scripture text for this morning, verses 26, right down through the end of that chapter, as we seek to answer this question, what makes a ministry? You know, it's easy for a church to begin and then to find itself straying away from the purposes of God, the plan of God for a church. Someone has said that into the conception of every organization are sown the seeds of its disintegration. 
Sometimes it involves wrong people. Wrong people can steer a church in the wrong way. Sometimes it involves wrong policies. A church makes certain policies and, and wrong policies admit wrong people and suddenly a church finds itself adrift and it may be adrift on a sea of doctrinal error or it may be adrift, as I said the other night, on a sea of authoritarianism. But somehow a church can very easily lose its mission and not have what I would call an authentic ministry. If I were looking for a church to join, I would want to join a church that had what I would call an authentic ministry. I'd want to lay down beside it certain standards. As I said last Wednesday evening, I would want to lay down beside the man who occupied the pulpit. Um, I would want to lay down certain standards and say, are these things true about this man? Because the Bible tells us we ought to do that. Looking for the marks of a minister and now looking for the marks of a ministry. My son and I recently were over in Africa. I was recalling, in fact, I tried to find, uh, ask questions, I tried to find a, a young man who worked for us while we were there in Africa. His name was Petrus and Kala. Petrus, Peter, and Kala is the Zulu name for crab, Peter the crab. And um, Petrus was a young man who was sleeping in a ditch, as a matter of fact, when we first moved to Zimbabwe, and he showed up. I mean, he just pitched up one day and asked for a job, and I had a little work for him to do, and, and uh, he did it. And then uh, uh, he came back the next day, and then pretty soon he just sort of weaseled his way into our hearts. And, and it wasn't very long before I was out in the garage out beside our house, uh, nailing some walls together and making a room so that Petrus could come and live with us. So my car stayed outside, Petrus stayed inside, and we had Peter the Crab permanently in our employment. Now, I, I just have to tell you something about uh, Petrus, and, and it's true of uh, many people from the area from which he came, where he was born. It is an area where uh, uh, the kind of symmetry and the kind of order that we enjoy as a part of our American culture is not something that they dearly prize. You see, if you're, if you're, if you're born in the out-of-doors and if you live all of your life out-of-doors, uh, there's much out there that has symmetry to it. A tree might have symmetry to it, but there's much that doesn't have symmetry. A path, for instance, might wander through the forest. It might go this way. It might go that way. And, and um, I learned something about Petrus pretty quickly, and that was that uh, if I didn't give him some pretty definite plans, uh, he, he just sort of did his yard work by wandering around in our, our garden. Um, let, me, let me give you an illustration. Beside our sidewalk that went into the front door of our house, um, we had a little, a little trough dug in the ground. It was just to go down so that the grass wouldn't grow over there. The reason you did that, to be perfectly honest, is because snakes would have a tendency to get in the grass beside a sidewalk, and um, you didn't want that, did you? I mean, I didn't think you wanted that. I wouldn't want that. And uh, so we would, we would cut a little furrow alongside the sidewalk so that you could see the snakes if they were lying there. It's a whole lot better if you can see snakes. Um, and so uh, we had this little, this little, you know, just a little trough alongside our, our sidewalk, and that's where uh, the ground was to be bare. Well, I gave Petrus a cutting spade, and I said, now you just make sure that you keep that trough right out there. And he said, I, I'll do that. And so next morning he was out there, and he chopped that thing along. And then the next day he was... He was out there, and he chopped it a little bit long, and that trough, I noticed, it just kept getting wider and wider. And, and then I noticed the Petrus didn't pay much attention, you know. I mean, that trough began to look like a snake. I mean, it would go down the side of our sidewalk, and some places it would be almost a foot of bare dirt, and then next place maybe just six inches. And 
I mean, that thing was just so squiggly. It looked terrible. You know, to my eyes, it looked terrible. And I said, Petrus, you need to make this line straight. Mm, Fundus, I'll get that line straight. So he uh, made the line straight. Well, it just wandered out. It was straight, but it just wandered out in our yard. And by the time it got out here, I mean, it was about three feet from the sidewalk. Finally, I said, Petrus, look, here's what we're going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, put these stakes in the ground. You know, and I put these stakes in the ground and, and tied a string on them. And I said, from here, that way I want grass. And from here, that way I want no grass. You know, piece of cake for me wasn't a piece of cake for Petrus. And, um, I mean, it was so hard for him to stay inside those markers, inside those lines. There was just something in him that said, this, this shovel is doing such a great job, we need to just wander out there in that huge yard. Look at all that grass I can dig out there. Well, churches are like that. People are like that. Uh, the, there's a tendency within us to, to, to wander, to drift, to stray. And there are many churches which have been born in the fever of genuine revival, a moving of God. God saying, this is what I want in this place. And then one day they wake up and discover that they have strayed or they wake up and discover leadership has strayed or followers have strayed. Somehow there is less than the authentic ministry of Christ going on in that particular fellowship. Here's what I'd like to do this morning. I want to draw a line. I want to put down some stakes. We're going to take from the Word of God some specific standards. We're going to nail them down, and this is the way we will measure whether we have an authentic ministry, whether we truly are the kind of ministry that Christ would want for us as a church family, the family that meets here in this building, but the family that scatters literally all over this city and several other cities in our area during the week. So you have your Bible open to Colossians chapter 1, and let's answer the question, what makes a ministry? What makes a ministry? First of all, let me say that a true ministry, a true Christian ministry, emphasizes a central message. That's the first thing you'll want to put there in your heart or in the margin of your Bible. It emphasizes a central message. If you ever get away from this message, then you are not an authentic ministry. I was reading the newspaper yesterday and reading about the various topics for sermons that were going to be preached or discussions that were going to be held at places which call themselves churches in our community. One church is having a celebration of the gay and lesbian movement uh, here in the Oklahoma City area, and somebody's going to come in and read poetry and play some songs, and it's a celebration of that kind of lifestyle in what supposedly would be a Christian church. Well, now, something's wrong with that picture, right? Wouldn't you agree? Something's wrong with that picture. I looked at some of the other topics. So many of them had to do not with this central message, which must be at the heart of everything that we do. What is that? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 27. He said, here is this message. It was a mystery to many people before us. It has been manifested to us now. It is Christ, that is the Jesus who walked among us. Christ in you, he is the hope of glory. Now, there are two issues at stake here. First is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I have discovered that anytime you can go to a church and the pulpit is silent on the issue of Jesus, it can have Christian or Christ written on the nameplate out there. It can have in its charter, we are a Christian church. 
The pastor can say that he is a Christian pastor, and they can say that when people come, what they study is Christian education from the book which the Lord Jesus Christ loves so much. But I want to tell you something. If the pulpit is silent about the person of Christ, something is dreadfully wrong. The Lord Jesus said that if he was lifted up, and he's referring to his being lifted up on the cross, not just magnified, if he was lifted up and men would look to him, that they would be saved. He said, if I be lifted up, I'll, I'll bring all men, draw all men unto me. And I want to tell you, dear friend, you can go to pulpit after pulpit, church building after church building this morning, and hear very little about the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus who is the King of kings, Jesus who is the Lord of lords, Jesus by whom all the universe not only was created, but Jesus who sustains all of the universe, Jesus who lived a perfect life, Jesus who took that sinless life and died on the cross of Calvary, Jesus who rose from the grave, Jesus who is coming again, Jesus who will reign as King of kings forever and forever and forever. That Jesus must be exalted in that church or it is not a Christian church. It emphasizes the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it also emphasizes the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The only way, the only hope you have is Jesus. I want to tell you something. We've learned, haven't we, that no system of government is the hope of the world. Systems of government rise and they fall. We're enjoying a system of government here in America. We're privileged to enjoy a government that has lasted longer than virtually every other government on the face of the earth. While most governments fall within at least 200 years, many of them we discover don't even last two years or even two months. But I want to tell you something. One of these days, this government will be dissolved. Government is not the hope of glory. Philosophy is not the hope of glory. Science is not the hope of glory. Every time we discover something, we think this is the end. But yet someone comes along later on and disproves what we thought to be so true. Science is not the hope of glory. You're not the hope of glory. I'm not the hope of glory. The only, only hope of glory is found in Jesus Christ. The promise is this, that if you will bring your sin-cursed life to the foot of the cross, repent of your sin and receive Christ by faith as your Savior, you will spend your forever in that glorious place called heaven, and you will have forgiveness, and you will have cleansing of sin. And so a church that is a true Christian church, authentic, legitimate, has the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, emphasizes this central message, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Secondly, it employs a convicting method. It employs a convicting method. I want you to look with me, if you will, please, at verse 28. Whom we preach. By the way, notice he said we don't preach the philosophies of men. We preach a person. We preach the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Let's stop right there. Notice there, first of all, he speaks about preaching as being part of this convicting method which we employ, preaching. Now, some of you are going to say, that's what we pay you to do, Brother Tom. You are the preacher, so we feel pretty satisfied. We not, may, may not have a very good preacher, but at least we got us a preacher. 
Uh, people who hear me sing are glad I preach. People who hear me preach wish I'd go into music. I have a little problem here. You say, but at least we got us a preacher. Well, it's not talking about an employed preacher here, whom we preach. And the word that is used in the original language is a very interesting word. It's a word which has uh, at its root the same word as angel. It says about him, that is, we bring good news, whom we preach, all of us. You bring the good news. I bring the good news. Sometimes it's preached from a pulpit. Sometimes it's taught in a class. Sometimes it's shared over the fence in the backyard. Sometimes out on the softball field. Sometimes it is shared at work, you see. But the point is, this good news about Jesus sharing that good news like an angel, bringing the message of good news, is the first convicting method that we use. But notice also, he tells us that as we share this good news, there is a specific procedure that we ought to follow. Not only we preach, but notice the procedure. He says, first of all, we warn, and then we teach. Now, that is the proper procedure, warning and then teaching. Now, this word warn is an interesting word because it means literally to put something into someone's mind to put something into someone's mind. And so it, here's what he's saying. He's saying our goal is, first of all, to put into the minds of people the danger that they are in because of sin. You see, the wages of sin is death. Ultimately, the wages of sin is to spend a forever in the place that the Bible calls hell. Hell is not something you're going to get used to. Hell is not a place where Satan is walking around pompously as king. If anybody is punished in hell, the most seriously, severely punished person in hell is the devil. It is reserved for the devil and for those who follow him. It is not a place where he will have a kingdom. He will be stripped of all kingship, all authority. He will spend forever in torment and agony in hell, and so will those who fail to receive Christ as their Savior. And so we warn people. We put it in their minds. Somehow we want to tell people, look, it's a grave situation. It's not just missing out on something that would be nice if you fail to receive Christ. It is going to hell forever. It's not just um, failing to do something which might be an encouragement and make you a good citizen. It is going to hell forever. It is failing to have the salvation of God. So we start in our preaching by putting that in people's mind, whom we warn every man, and then he says we teach every man. What do we teach them? We teach them how to avoid that. And that word means there that we share information with them. We get our word didactic information. We, we somehow take the information that is available and we say, look, you don't have to spend forever separated from God in hell. Here is the answer. Christ is the answer. Repenting of sin, receiving Christ by faith, that is the answer. You can spend forever, not in hell, you can spend your forever in heaven. And so we warn every man, and then we teach every man. We preach using this procedure, and it's a convicting message. I have uh, I've always been amazed, for instance, on a Sunday morning in a worship service like this, we'll gather together several thousand people. There are that many people, but there's only one preacher. There's only one message. There is, um, at least during this time, the choir preaches, the instrumentalists preach, your teachers will preach in one sense of the word, but right at this moment, one preacher, one message, 
several thousand needs that need to be met. And yet here's a man who's going to stand up here and read some verses from a book that many people say they could never understand. He's going to deliver that message in the simplest language that he can find at his grasp. And that one experience is supposed to meet somehow the need of every person here. How does that happen? It happens because preaching is God's plan. It pleases God by the foolishness of the thing preached to bring people into his kingdom. It's an amazing thing, folks. It is an absolutely amazing thing. I mean, can you imagine? All across this nation, people are gathered right now at this hour in rooms like this, and someone is preaching one message. They have come from all different backgrounds, have different needs. Some of them have come, they just want to worship the Lord. Some have come, their world has fallen in around them this week. Some have lost their families. Some are about to lose their lives. Some have lost their fortune. All of those different needs, and yet one message from the Word of God, the Holy Spirit takes that message, lifts out that part which will apply to you, drives it home to your heart. And I want to tell you that when a church gets away not only from preaching Christ, but from preaching, that church does not have an authentic message. Not only preaching from the pulpit, but you warning every man and then teaching every man how they can have eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, it emphasizes a central message. It employs a convicting method. Here is the third stake we're going to drive down. It embraces a compelling motive. It embraces a compelling motive. What it should be the motive of an authentic church? You say, well, to stay alive or to get money or to build buildings or to have more people. Those are all terrible motives. I'll tell you, I wouldn't darken the door I wouldn't give a dime to a church if I felt like that their reason for wanting to minister to me was so that I would give to them. That's right. If I turn on the television, I listen to someone, and I feel like that he is doing what he's doing so he can get money from me, or so that I'll pitch in with whatever his game, I would, I would immediately refrain from becoming involved whatsoever. That is a terrible motive. You see, the purpose of the church is not to make the church look good. The purpose of the church is not to make the church look good. The purpose of the church is far different than that. It is to glorify Christ, and then it has another motive, and I want you to see it, the last part of verse 28, that we, here's the purpose, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That's the purpose of the church, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to see something. This word present will stir your emotions if you really understand what he's saying. And I want to give it to you in the original language so that you will see the, the, both the prefix and the root. Now, the root is the word which means stand. Stay me is the word in the original language. But alongside that, in front of it goes this word para. It's paristomy, para, alongside, a paramedic, someone who serves alongside. All right, it says here that one of these days, these folks with whom we minister, one of these days he says, I want to stand beside them and they will be exhibit A of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to change lives. They will be the ones I stand beside. Whom we, he said, stand beside. One of these days there will be what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. The issue will not be 
whether you get into heaven, the judgment seat of Christ is reserved only for Christians. You don't get there unless you know Christ as your Savior. The Lord's going to come. He's going to gather up unto himself the church, and then there will be this that the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. The issue will be, what did you do with what I gave you? The opportunities, those moments that I gave you, the opportunity to witness, the opportunity to share your faith, what you do with, with the financial resources I gave you, the hours I gave you, the talents I gave you. What have you done with what I gave you? And he's saying that at that time, those who have been motivated properly will have in this, their heart this great desire. I want to stand there before the Lord Jesus Christ, not saying, Lord, I did this, or Lord, I did that, or Lord, I was so wonderful, or Lord, I could do this, or I had all these talents, but Lord, these are those for whom you died. Moravian Mission Church said, what greater way of saying thank you to God could we have than to lay at his feet the souls of those for whom he died? In other words, the best that I can do for Jesus is to have someone standing beside me when I enter heaven. Amen? And so he says, the underlying motive is to have someone standing beside me whom we present, he says, or that we may present every man perfect. Now, the word perfect. We get our English word telescope from the same root here. Telescope, to have the long view or the goal in mind. Now, the word perfect here in the language that the Apostle Paul is, uh, is using employs this idea. I want to have standing beside me someone who has become over the long haul what Christ wanted him to become. Let me say it again. When I enter heaven, when I stand before the Lord Jesus, my underlying goal in ministry is to have standing along with me, having honored Christ, those for whom he died, who have become all that Christ wanted them to become, complete in Christ Jesus. Now, you know what that means? That means that churches have got to be involved in something more than short-term projects. An authentic Christian ministry is a long-term investment. How long? A lifelong. It is a long-term investment. It is me saying to you, I'm with you. You're with me. We're going to provoke one another to love and good works by challenging one another, by encouraging one another, by praying for one another, and those whom we have the privilege of leading to Christ who become a part of this fellowship, we over the long haul as the church of the living Lord Jesus Christ are becoming all that he wants us to be. One of these days when Christ comes, instead of standing there saying, oh, I wish I'd led somebody to Jesus, we'll be able to have standing beside us those for whom he died, who received him as Savior and in whom we have invested a lifetime of effort and ministry so that they might become all that Christ wants them to become. Now, if you don't have that in a church, if you don't have a lifetime commitment, you don't have an authentic ministry. It's not a matter of popping in and popping off and popping out. That's what a lot of people think. You know, I come on Sunday morning, 
I'll just sort of pop in. I'll listen to the church or the preacher pop off, and then I'll pop out. That's what a lot of people believe, and that's just pop Christianity. But Christianity, as Christ intended it, the authentic church, is a life commitment to you helping me and me helping you become what Christ wants us to be. And I don't think we ought to have anybody on the staff, whether it's the people who are in the employment of the church or whether they're in the Sunday school staff. I'll tell you, I was so, I was so pleased a few moments ago, Brother James Bradford. Now, he's our, he's our uh, associate minister of music in charge of our instrumental, our, our wonderful orchestra and our youth choir ministry. And, and uh, so here's Brother James. He could say, look, I'm in charge of instrumental music. My big worry is how many violins we're going to have on Sunday morning. That's what you pay me to do. Get all the violinists up there. Get all the people up there. Get everybody to do everything they're supposed to do. Make sure the youth choir's doing what it's supposed to do. Now, let me ask you a question. You say, well, that's, that's what he gets his salary to do. Oh, well, let me tell you something. But that's not what makes him an authentic minister. That's not what gives us authentic ministry. What authenticated the fact that there is a ministry in this church and that he is a minister? A few moments ago, here's a man standing in the baptistry. And he says, this week, Brother James Bradford told me about the Lord Jesus, and I received Christ by faith as my Savior. Now, that authenticates the ministry, right? And so an authentic ministry not only emphasizes a central message and employs a convicting method, an authentic ministry embraces a compelling motivation. What drives me? What drives you? That in all things, Christ might have the preeminence. And Jesus, to have preeminence, that means I must do what he said. And what he said was that I should go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, that I might present them, have standing with me when I enter heaven, those in whom I have invested a lifetime, that they might become all that Christ intends for them to become. There's one other mark of a true ministry, authentic ministry. What we do must be expressed in a committed manner. It must be expressed in a committed manner. Notice here, if you will, verse 29. He says, Whereunto I also labor. Now, this, this word labor refers to a, a genuine display of effort. We get our word chop from this word. Kapiao, it means to, to chop. And the, the, the sense here in the original language was, I work so hard that there comes a point when it seems like something is just chopping into my muscles. It's just cutting into my strength. I can't go on any further. I try, and it just, I'm just cut down. And so he says, I labor in this fashion. I display effort. By the way, aren't you glad, if you're part of First Southern, that you're you're not a member of a glorified country club. You know, I, it's amazing what happens just, you know, you know just as a side uh, effect of, of when the Lord is at work among people. I was driving this morning. We picked up Brother Don about 7.30, and we were on our way to church, and we were driving in. I said, Brother Don, do you know of any church, any place in all the world that has such beautiful grounds? We were thinking together and thanking God for... All the efforts, so many volunteers, the people here on our church staff, everybody's gone to to make this place just beautiful. 
I mean, that's just beautiful. But you know what? That's a side benefit. You see, the, our, our purpose in being here is more than that. But isn't it amazing? I mean, I, I just, I was amazed. I walked down the hallway, all these beautiful flowers, you beautiful people. The way, the way I mean, just, it's just, it's a pleasure to be here. But aren't you glad that you're part of a fellowship that emphasizes more than just the pleasures of the Christian life? Aren't you glad that you're part of an enterprise that says, hey, we work. I mean, there is effort. There are late nights, and there are long hours, and there's visiting, and there's preparing for teachers, and there's cleaning up rooms, and, and there's taking care of these grounds. There's, 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 there's working down there with those preschoolers, some of the hidden saints of this church. You never get to darken the door of the auditorium, and they're down there with your children and, and with the children's ministries and, and with our young people, people who have spent countless hours on the phone calling people and saying, won't you come? I care for you, and I want to pray for you. And people who say, I'm going to study this lesson so that when I get into that class, I can warn them, and I can teach them, and I can really be interested in them. Aren't you glad that you're a part of something that is not just here to be enjoyed? Pay your dues and come and enjoy it. It's here where the dues is really effort. People say it's, it involves work. It involves getting out there and beating your feet against the pavement and beating your knuckles on the door. Involves going to the hospital, involves going to the funeral home, involves going to the doctor's office, involves going to people's homes, and you'd say, man, I tell you, I don't know anybody but Jesus that can change people in that home. And I'll tell you, every time I look out here and I see miracle after miracle after miracle, I realize this didn't just happen because you fell into this place. Somebody went after you. We've got a sign over there that says, there ain't hardly nobody been one that ain't been went after. That's right. Not good English, but that's true. Ain't hardly nobody been one that ain't been went after after your folks who've been gone after somebody went after you they came after you with heart and soul and they said somehow some way at this point in your life we want you to know jesus is the answer for your life and so he says we we labor we labor this, this is this this manner in which we work this committed manner notice not only is there a display of effort but there is a dependency upon a certain kind of energy whereunto i also labor Striving, he said, to do his work. By the way, this word striving, agonizomai. We get our word agony. He says, I agonize over the church. But he said, I do it with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ working within me. Do you know the way to become young is to do what God wants you to do in the fullness of his spirit? It doesn't wear you down or wear you out. It builds you up. It strengthens you. I remember Brother Ralph uh, telling me about uh, seeing something on a West Texas, a West Texas highway. We don't normally let people on our staff even get anywhere near West Texas, or Texas for that matter. I don't know. He was strayed. He was away from God, and he was down in West Texas. <laughs> West Texas is so flat. I mean, even the choir sings flat in West Texas if you're from West Texas. I'll hear from you along with the cat people too. Um, he said, I was down there in West Texas, driving down there. He said, I looked down there, there's a man pumping. He's pumping water. He said, man, the closer I got, he said, the more I saw that guy was just, man, he was really pumping his water. He said, I thought to myself, how long can a guy do that? He said, I got down there and it wasn't really a man, but it was actually a... It actually the figure of a man cut out 
and hinged and placed holding on to a pump handle, and underneath there was an artesian well. He said, actually, it was the force of the water that was just, he said, here was this wooden figure just with his arm just going up and down like that. That's about the way a lot of Texas people get stuff done. Anyway, you know, just wooden figures. Anyway, he said it was through no effort. It was not through the effort of this wooden man that that water was coming. It was the water that was making the man work. And I want to tell you something. When you are filled with the Spirit of God, it's not you out there saying, I'm going to do something for Jesus. It's Jesus welling up within you, living his life out through you and letting you be his hands and you be his arms and his legs and you be his eyes and you be his mouth to love other people into the kingdom of God. And so he says, I agonize, I labor, but it's Christ working within me. I can do all things through Christ. Who? That is Jesus, who strengthens me. Some of you, if you're wearing yourself out. Could it be that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing for the body of Christ and you're not doing it in the power of the Spirit as you ought to be doing because he says, I strive according to his working which works mightily within me. He says, man, there is more power coming into me than, than is going out of me. It's working mightily within me. He says, building up force within me. Sometimes I'll have to tell you, dear friends, on Sunday morning, as I begin thinking about this worship service, I sort of shadow box. I mean, not, I guess that's what boxers do. They're sort of get. I mean, I'm, I get home, I'm excited about it. I get up here, I'm excited about it. Boy, that's the worst time in the world. Come to me and say, Brother Tom, parking lot needs striping again. Oh, come on. Let's, I'm, I know, I'm, I'm getting ready for, for Sunday morning. And do you know something I feel sometimes before I get in? I'm going to explode. All that's in my heart. Somehow I say, Lord, and when it's all over, I say, Lord, I just did, did, didn't get it all out. Didn't get it all out. Striving according to his working, which works mightily within me. That is the, the manner in which we do what we do, a committed manner. Well, do we have an authentic ministry here? I think so. I think so. I think we emphasize the central message, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think we employ a convicting method whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man. I think we embrace here a compelling motive that we might present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And I believe right here in this place with these people, we express a committed manner striving, working according to his working, which works mightily within us. Now, the question is, are you authentic as a Christian? Whether you call yourself a member of this church or whether you're here this morning for the very first time, are you authentic, truly a part of the family of Christ? In a few moments, we're going to stand together our choir is going to help us as we sing our hymn of invitation. And this will be a personal invitation for you to come to know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. This will be the moment for you to open your heart and receive Christ as your Savior. Can you imagine wanting to even leave a place like this this morning without knowing for sure that if you died, you'd go to heaven? But more than that, knowing all of your sins are forgiven, knowing you have peace with God, knowing you have purpose in life, knowing that God has made you a part of his family, 
All of that can be yours this morning. So the invitation is for you to say yes to Christ. And when we stand and begin singing, I want to encourage you to step to Nile, make your way forward, come receive the risen Christ as your Savior and as the Lord of your life. Open your heart to receive him this morning. Whether you're a teenager, whether you're a grandparent this morning, come down this aisle and say, look, I want to trust Jesus as my Savior. If you've made a decision in recent days, such as these who were baptized this morning, or maybe you've joined our church in another service, I'm going to ask you to come when we stand and just be seated over here where it says seating for new members because we want to introduce you at the close of the service. It could be this morning you'd have to say, look, I'm not a part of this church, but God's leading me here. I really believe it with all my heart. Would you do this? When we stand, would you just make your way to an aisle, come find a counselor and say, look, I want to join this church. We want to join this church. Our family wants to join this church. We want to become a part of an authentic ministry, a true ministry in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'd encourage you to do that this morning without hesitation. Could be that you need to come and kneel here at this altar and pray about some need in your life. Or maybe you want to ask a counselor about that. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, you want to come. If you want to follow him in the ordinance of baptism, you want to come. If God's speaking to your heart and calling you into a specific ministry, you want to come and share that with a counselor. This altar is open for you, dear friend. What a wonderful moment it is for you to set things right in your life. Set the record straight. Heaven as well as on earth. This is where I stand. This is what I want to be. This is what we want to do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Let's stand together. I'm going to lead us in prayer. The moment I say amen, you prepare right now to step to the aisle, make your way forward. Just get it ready in your heart. Father, I pray that the devil would not talk anybody out of doing that which you put it upon their heart to do. For you have said, if a man knows what is right to do and does it not to him it is sin. Father, I pray you would find all of us saying yes to you. Lord, I pray that some who've just been religious but not authentic would open their hearts and receive Christ as their Savior this morning. Others would come and be a part of this church. Still others, Lord, would set the record straight with you this morning. And I pray it in Jesus' wonderful and matchless and saving name, amen. Let's begin singing. And as we sing, you just come and join others who are already coming to the altar this morning.